As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Major Spoilers VIP members. Thank you for your support of Major Spoilers and the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. If you would like to become a bronze, silver, or gold VIP member, go to members.majorspoilers.com for more information. Welcome to Critical Hit, a major spoilers podcast. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. And as you can tell by the title of this episode, it's time to answer some questions from our mailbag. Yay. Here we go. First question. First question comes from Ben, who says, I've been a DM a couple of times in the past and have been repeatedly told that my world seem a little empty. What is the best solution for this? I don't have a lot of experience, but what might I do to balance the player's focus and give them all the details that they want. Hmm. It depends what details they want. Yeah, it also depends what they mean by empty, I guess. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, um, it, are they saying you don't have a lot of... I'm well aware that I have character. a tendency to jump to the next plot point rather than let the world evolve as the play- players interact. I've implemented steps to solve this, but another problem always pops up where the players latch onto the newfound detail or onto the few found details and think that everything is important. Yeah. Hmm. That's that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. The problem the is problem. that if you only describe what's important, then anytime you describe something, you're training your players to think that's important. So what mm-hmm. you need to do is describe unimportant things as well. Um, and NPCs you just going about and, their average life, uh, basically describing how the world evolves when the players aren't there. Yep. Yeah. And right. what's going to happen is for a while the players are still going to latch on to unimportant details, mm-hmm. but if you keep doing it, eventually you'll train them out of it as well, and they'll be like, why did you tell us that there were six cups in that cupboard? And it's like, well, because there were six cups in that cupboard. <laughs> right. Like, you can go investigate that cupboard and you're not going to find anything. You, you can also outsource some of this. Cup. Um, you know, I, I've, got, I've been in a few games where the DMs have uh, encouraged their players to come up with like a lot of detail about where in the world they're from. Hmm. So it's, you know, if you're an elf, you know, the government structure of the elven lands and, you know, the religion of the elven lands and like, you've got your family in the elven lands and that way, anytime you're actually going there, the DM has already like a template to build on. Okay. Anything else? I would say that this is, um, this is one of the big ones. This is one of the central core, uh, big things that will hit you in the face when you are the dungeon master is finding that balance between enough detail to keep everyone's attention and so much detail that they're focusing on that bug in the corner. And I will say this, Rodrigo is one of the most skilled dungeon masters I've ever worked with, and we still do that. <laughs> we still have 45-minute discussions about whether or not all of the clues that point to the clues are pointing us to the clues. So Mm-hmm. It is something that it, it's going to happen. You're never going to eliminate it. The point is when you find that sweet spot between they say this and you say that, and then you'll find a middle point that should work with your players. <coughs> 45 minutes. <coughs> All right. Jacob writes in and says, I'm currently running a new campaign. I've come across a unique problem. By sheer accident, my PCs have created the perfect party. By sheer chance, every one of them made a character that has some sort of control or combat advantage feat or power that gives buffs to the other party members. 
Every encounter mm-hmm. I throw at them is over as almost as fast as it starts. <laughs> I've tried everything from adding special abilities and attacks to monsters to throwing them into encounters three levels above where they should be fighting, and they still mm-hmm. clean house every time. Dang. I don't want to outright kill them, but I've always run my fighting thinking if I don't make them worried uh, about how many healing surges they have left, then I didn't give them a challenge. Any advice on how to make the combat more of a challenge without just killing the party with a level 28 dragon from beyond uh, the far reaches of the Astral Sea? Thank you from Jacob. Hmm. Uh, I mean, you can slowly amp up the difficulty a little more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said you've thrown level threes and they're wiping the floor with, or three levels higher and they're wiping the floor with them. Yeah. You could try, first off, in fourth edition, a, an encounter three levels above the party is supposed to be challenging but doable. Mm-hmm. So a an optimized party in, in fourth edition should actually be able to take level like characters that are three levels above them. Yeah, without try too much level. Yeah. Hey, you can try another level. Try a little more, a few more monsters. Uh, like you said, you obviously don't want to go too far because mm-hmm. at a certain point, it's just going to get to where they can't physically hit. Mm-hmm. The enemies, because yeah, that's you're going to have to basically working. sit down and do some math and see, yeah, basically how much are the monsters hitting the players by, how much are the players hitting the monsters by, how much relative damage are they doing, and you might have to adjust certain scores along those realms to get things a bit more ballpark. Um, if, yeah. if they're so mechanically perfect, you can also try introducing non-mechanical challenges. Absolutely. Uh, and then you can also try to um, break up their synergies by introducing things that, say, one of them has to do that isn't putting up their buffs mm-hmm. on the other ones. Right. Yeah. And and there's also just straight up separating them. You can mm-hmm. run two tandem combats. You know, say you and you are in this room, you and you are in this room, and then throw the monsters at them. And whoever beats their monsters first can go to the next room and help the others. <laughs> I've, I've done that on the show before. Mm-hmm. And it means that, you know... The leader is only in one room, and that other person with him is getting all the buffs, but the other guys are really having a hard time of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, be careful about how exactly you separate them. Yeah. But, you know, it sounds like these guys are pretty optimized, um, at least for group combat. Um, and, yeah, I guess uh, the other thing is uh, the, the idea of non-combat-based things... Mm-hmm. is good have it be where like they take a fairly high amount of damage every turn unless somebody turns like turns off the fire damage thing and they have to use their skills to do it you know uh, and it eats up their action you know that sort of thing okay uh cat writes in um Question for Rob in regards to the canned 5e campaign. Why bother rolling the saving throws if you know the monster's going to die even with only receiving half damage? If a monster only has one hit point, the damage roll is two, and the effect gives half damage on a losing saving throw, why bother rolling? Um, Mostly to keep myself in the habit of actually doing the saving rolls, because it's not something that we're used to since they're not... In 4th edition, uh, if I knew specifically what you were talking about, I might be able to uh, answer that, but I I don't know if... Well, but it's also, I mean, if a a creature has a saving roll, Mm -hmm. I mean, just from the mechanics of the way the rules work... Wouldn't you still do it even though you know it's a fight? Yeah, the the I thing mean, is, well, the thing is, what they were saying is, there's some stuff that does damage on a miss. Right. Why roll saving throws for monsters that only have one hit point if they're going to do it anyway? And the thing is, is we were this was everybody who was involved our first step into D and D next. So it made sense for Rob to follow every step of the rules. Just like when you're playing Magic, you go through your upkeep, even though you might not have anything that Mm -hmm. triggers on an upkeep. Because then, later on, when you do have something that triggers on an upkeep, you will remember to have gone through your upkeep. Right. Yep. And there there may have been things on some of the monsters that say, when this monster saves, it does a thing. Mm -hmm. Or things on the characters that when a monster saves, this thing happens. It's... It's good to be in the habit of it. Yeah. Best practices are always the best. Best. Idea. That's why they're best. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
this question may be a little bit late. I mean, this really, honestly, was not that long ago when it was sent in, but... Um, <laughs> person writes in and says, Brian mentioned in an episode that he was looking into Epic Destinies for Randus. Hmm. I just wanted to point you guys over to the Master of Moments Destiny in Psionic Power. Um, it would require multi-class into a Psionic class, but I've always thought it would fit Randus perfectly. It's basically a time traveler who gets crazy flexible cl uh, class features dealing with actions and extra minor action each turn. <laughs> Maybe. Well, something yeah. to look into. Yeah, Sounds randus -y. <laughs> Pretty Sounds random. complicated. Yes, it does. Also, maybe, but I could use an extra probably. minor action. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I started a campaign that is primarily exploration-based, in which my characters must sail to unexplored islands in search of an ancient artifact. But I'm mm -hmm. afraid that when they find out a certain island doesn't have the artifact on it, they'll leave immediately instead of looking around and completing side quests. Do you have any creative ways of keeping players from uh, staring straight ahead and marching through a campaign? Thanks for ask, answering my question. Uh, keep up the great work. Scraggly Silas is the best. <laughs> uh, how how do they know immediately that there isn't an item on the island? I mean, what is the mechanism that allows them to know that their magical item isn't present? Sure. No, I uh, totally know? understand where you're coming from on that, Matthew. But yeah. uh, let's say that uh, they have to travel to the temple. Mm -hmm. And as they're traveling to the temple, you know, some other people pop up. You know, with the question mark above their head or the exclamation right. <laughs> mark above their head, right. and um, either the players don't engage with those people, or they're like, "Yes, we'll be back to help you out." They go to the temple, don't find the thing, and then just immediately leave instead of like, "Oh, let's go help those people that needed us to uh, gather coconuts or to kill seventeen <laughs> boars." Uh, one thing you can do is make it so the quest that the side quests that you're trying to send them on coincide with them trying to find the artifact mm -hmm. yeah. like if it's go kill 17 boars well a the temple has been overrun by wild boars and you know in order to even right. actually search the temple you have to kill a bucket of boars. Wild. oh look there's 17 yeah. of them uh, i mean the other thing you could do is make it really unclear what the artifact is or where it might be like if there's all these sorts of rumors about a source of power that you know some troglodyte stole and you have to go you know raid their village to find it well that might be your magic artifact it could be anything else uh or you know if people are going to reward you for doing their quest with access to their mystic library or you might be able to find out more information about the artifacts yeah think about it narratively think about um, how it would play out in a TV show, the sort of red herrings that you need to put in front of the characters for that. Um, mm -hmm. So they go to the first island and they walk in and they say, say, Islander, do you have a glowing, floating sapphire idol? Nope. Nope. They're like, oh, well, let's everybody get back on the boat. And then they go to the next island and they're like, hey there, uh, Islander, do you have a glowing sapphire thing? And the Islander answers, no, but uh, maybe you could help us do something else. Actually, or I was, I was going to, no, because then, rumors they'll, because of a they'll, glowing jewel. then they'll get in the boat. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, so, but, but you keep doing so, that, yeah, you're never going to stop. What you do is, maybe, so that's right, or you just have the Islander say, brains. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, we sure cleared this island full of zombies, and we didn't find the sapphire idol here. Let's get into the next island. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't have the, have the islander on the second island tell them that they heard rumors of it on the, on the first island. island. You get to the third island. They say, "Is the sapphire idol here?" They say, "No, it's not." They get on the boat and they sail to the fourth island, which looks identical to the third island. An identical <laughs> islander says, "Hello." Like, is a sapphire idol here? Nope. They sell to the fifth island, which looks identical to the third island, where an identical <laughs> islander tells them that. Yep. Now they have to figure that shit out. Otherwise, they're never actually going to get to the fourth island. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and since we don't know what your side quests are, I mean, it. I mean, if it is literally, uh, you know, one of the one of our villagers was captured and 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 you know taken away, can you go help? Mm -hmm. That. That's or, a little you know, bit harder. Sucks. Goodbye. Yeah, put, I mean that really their, is kind of hard. Put their boat on a plot base, base timer. It's been working for me so far. How is <laughs> <laughs> that? Uh, make some of the side quests personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's uh, there's an episode actually of the Green Lantern speaking of things in shows, the Green Lantern animated series that I love, where like they the, the characters basically go to a place 
discover there's a problem there and they're like, not our problem and leave. <laughs> and then someone stows away on their ship and makes it there. I've actually, uh, I've nice. actually, that's of all the episodes that they've released. That's the only one I've seen. <laughs> I know exactly which one you're talking about. Uh, it's, it's excellent. And yeah. so feel free to use stowaways or, you know, sabotage or anything yeah, like sabotage that. Sabotage would be great. Problems, yep. There's, uh, yeah, uh, think about it narratively. Think about those classic stock plots from fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. that'll that'll help you out. Yep. Come back to your boat, getting ready to walk away, and it turns out there's armed islanders on your boat. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one comes from Christopher, who says, Dear Critical Hit crew, I've been listening to Critical Hit off and on for the last years and first wanted to thank you, uh, thank the Fearless Party and Patient DM for saving my long drives <laughs> home from Rich- Richmond, Washington to Lincoln, Nebraska for the summer as I continue nope. to catch up. My question is more of an aesthetic one because I've noticed that I've played tabletop games in so many different places. Dining rooms, game stores, coffee shops, Masonic Lodge, projecting a battle map onto a table, recliners around a coffee table, and lately a basement around an old poker table. Hmm. What are your favorite places <laughs> or furniture arrangements or setups? I'm not quite sure uh, what the word is that I'm looking for for group gaming. What does the current Let's setup see. look like when you guys are recording Critical Hit Barring Matthews and Sam Skyping in? <coughs> Well, you know, we just recently, mm-hmm. for a long time, we were around a uh, poker a poker table. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did that for many years in and a then, basement. In a basement, uh, and then just uh, <laughs> recently, we've changed it out to a more rectangular table for some other things that we're doing. Yeah. Still like in a basement. Cat. It's a big enough. It's a big enough table for role playing, and mm-hmm. uh, even with you know, we've got laptops now because we're on roll twenty. But if we were doing battle mat, it's yeah, it's big enough. I mean, yeah. it's a thirty six inch wide by six foot long table. Uh, so it's um, maybe it's a little bit wider than thirty six inches. It's large enough for a Star Wars attack uh, X wing attack wing uh, mat to play on. So it's big enough for that. So I think you would be big enough there. Uh, I've gone to a couple of gaming places where literally it's a four by eight sheet of play- plywood on um, mm-hmm. sawhorses, mm-hmm. and I've been to other and those. I mean, not necessarily for Dungeons and Dragons, but like Warhammer and stuff. And then I was uh, up to one in Kansas City uh, a couple of months ago, and they had a fantastic game room where some of them were literally, you know, the uh, four by six uh, folding table all the way up to something that was a massive, had to have been like six foot by six foot table that could accommodate a lot of people. So I don't, you know, that's just my experiences seeing other people play. But the game store is set up for a lot of different people playing a lot of different games. Right. When I was in college, the dormitory I was in had a massive common room Mm -hmm. and there was a huge oak table. It was like four feet wide and maybe 18 feet long. Mm -hmm. So you, and God help us, we did, you could have six or 10 or sometimes in the worst case scenario, 13 players at the same time being really stupid and doing stupid things. And you always had room for all your stuff. And, of course, being an oaken table, it had that really great kind of rolling sound when you throw your <laughs> dice. It's I guess it, it's I, pretty awesome. I guess I would just say, and we'll get around to everybody else, um, I would just say if everyone's comfortable, it doesn't matter where you're playing. True. Um, that would be my big suggestion. I mean, I'm not suggesting you go out and buy one of those $15,000 uh, gaming tables that take two years <laughs> to build and develop, but they sure do look nice. Yeah. But no, as long as you got like somewhere to roll dice and even then, uh, we've definitely just done it on a bunch of couches with some cardboard boxes, like game boxes, lids to roll in and yeah. that can work. Yeah, I would say we've done it at basically every place I've ever lived uh, or at every place that I've ever had. And it's always been just either a kitchen table or whatever we had for living room furniture and some sort of makeshift table in the center of the room. Uh, as long as everybody's comfortable and preferably everybody can actually like see each other and most importantly, see the DM mm-hmm. usually pretty good. Yeah. Sam. Yeah. I mean, I'm also uh, mostly playing a basement. Uh, we've got two couches and a big chair that the DM sits in. Uh, we do a decent amount of remote gaming with my friends. So we actually have a TV that we use to put the uh, person who's not there's face on. Cool. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, uh, we usually use a coffee table for the grid though. I played in weirder situations. We once used a um, Mondo mat, which is a 
ludicrously large grid that wouldn't fit on any table we own. So we just had to lay it down on the floor Mm -hmm. and basically, you know, sit on the floor slash sit on Mm -hmm. the couches and get up to actually move things when we wanted to uh, for a epic level Mm -hmm. D&D game. But yeah, again, whatever makes you comfortable. I, I like sitting on a couch for long periods of time. But if you have really comfortable chairs at your dining room or coffee table, that's all good, too. Yep. Rodrigo, any other things? Uh, I guess given the choice, I prefer a table uh, with chairs and enough space for everybody to put their stuff down and have it be well lit. Like That's mm-hmm. that's about mm-hmm. it for me, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ray writes in from Atlanta, I got extremely bored at my soul-crushing office job and began to chronicle the plot of critical hit in poetry form. Oh, and he did send <laughs> me some poetry. Nice. Um, so, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Um <laughs> Sarandus ran away, bravely ran away, away. So answer this one from Edward. Love the podcast. Quick question. When you first introduced the Comet Fault Charge, you had said that by using that, it did not end the turn. But ever since then, it had ended the turn. Just wondering why the difference. Keep up the great work. I, I want to say that that was one of the powers where the rules changed mm-hmm. during the game on that and also come and get it where we were running it and it went one way and then we updated and all of a sudden the power worked differently. Yep. Mm-hmm. I believe wizards actually changed the way the power worked. Sounds very likely. I think it, it may have been, you, you know, I loved it. Um, it may have been just a little overpowered it. and they nerfed it a bit. Yeah. I'll see if I can find it. Do, 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 do. <laughs> When Miranda's dead cease to oh, exist and all uh, so okay. terribly pissed. Oh. Awesome. Uh, Brave Miranda's. It doesn't say anything about any errata. That's yeah, definitely one of those uh, interesting aspects Strange. of having a game that is regularly updated. Yep. Too bad they didn't have, you know, digital books so they could, you know, just incorporate all the updates yep. into a single file. We but. might have just skipped that clause later on in the game. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, here's one. It says, I once ran a game in which the main plot was that all the infinite dimensions were being collapsed into one chaotic mess by a crazy bad guy. When the players got to fighting Mr. Bad Guy at the end, I introduced a mechanic to symbolize the different dimensions crossing into one another. Every turn I would introduce a change in the world and players had to role play like the changes made sense and were entirely normal uh, to be doing. For example, our ranger fought with a crossbow and his bow turned into a giant banana that shot monkeys at terminal velocity. Uh, The monk started walking on his hands and used his quarterstaff with his feet. And my personal favorite, our orc barbarian who had previously been using a spiked wooden club was now running around bashing Mr. Bad Guy with a giant squeaky toy. Have you ever run or been in a game that had some sort of mechanic or event where you could barely get through because you were laughing so hard? I'd love to hear any details. Uh, Matthew's got one about a whale. Yeah, the whale was fun. That was a 3.5 game. Uh, I'm almost certain we broke the rules, but <laughs> I had the I had the ability to summon a creature, and I was a bard, and I couldn't do much else, so I, I summoned a blue whale because it said you could, and I just happened to summon it 10 feet in the air above the guys who were attacking us. Um, Isn't that the, it, the trick to that? Is you use a wall of force to create a pool of water right. so the, to summon the whale yes, in? Since yes, it has yes, to be in you an do break, environment. Yes, you break the rules if you just summon the whale. But if you cast something that can hold enough water for it to live in, then cast like summon element or whatever to fill it with water, then cast the whale inside it. I guess technically it does work. <laughs> and then yeah. dispel the wall. It's the SeaWorld clause. We also once played a game of... It was Ravenloft, so it was supposed to be scary and spooky. And my fellow players were... What's a nice way to say they were a bunch of dicks? <laughs> well, certainly they not were... by prefacing it by saying that. Well, they were they were a contentious lot. Feel free to edit out whatever word needs to be edited out there. And they didn't want me to play because they had played with me and they thought that I could not play a serious game. And to be honest, they may have been right. That doesn't make them any less of... But what had happened was we were fighting creatures that, when you killed them, somehow transformed into other creatures. Hmm. So you were fighting a rabbit and then all of a sudden it turned into a raven and then it turned into a bat. It was really ridiculous. But it was quite hysterical because we would, you know, kill the rabbits and everybody was singing, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. And then they turned into ravens and then it got ridiculous. And by the third transformation, 
what was supposed to be a big scary game of, of metamorphic bad things was all of us singing cartoon theme songs and they actually were 100% right at that point i was i was not good at the serious part of the ravenloft so i can do serious now i, I did a eulogy once at critical hit yes. sam um, I played in a particularly zany one-shot once uh, where the plot was that there was um, a chosen of Oladamara who had made a deal with the devil and that had gone badly and we had to unravel the whole thing. But um, part of it were that they were all these little objects that were scattered throughout the dungeon and we had to collect them. And we knew they had to collect. We had to collect them because whenever we saw one of them, it would helpfully say, I'm a clue. And um, wow. it was... We had someone who had to leave halfway through the one run shot and then someone else who came in. And then <laughs> when the second person came in, uh, they picked up some item and we all just simultaneously said, I'm a clue. And they he thought we were totally insane having missed the first <laughs> half. Uh, this, this game, there was also various riddles and puzzles and things like that, including one where we had to activate uh, something without setting off trap by playing Twister. So it, it was a good time. <laughs> cool. Uh, Brian? Mm, not really any specific, like, mechanically backed events I can think of too much other than us just being goofy bastards. Gamma World. Gamma World. A bit, yeah. There's some fun Paranoia. Yeah. <laughs> One time my character thought that another character had turned another character into a pumpkin. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Things like that. That was a good one. <laughs> there was also that bit where you hallucinated feather pillows. That was freaking yes. hysterical. Oh, and then there was one time that Orm got drunk. <laughs> one time? Yeah. It was a long time yeah. Orm got drunk. Right, Rio? Um, I guess it was kind of a like a, a friend of mine was running a Shadowrun game, and we all got together and made Shadowrun characters. But we, he he knew what he wanted out of the game, but we didn't. We didn't mm-hmm. know what you were supposed to be doing in Shadowrun. So we'd go and we'd talk to people, and they'd be like, "Oh, you want to take this Shadowrun job?" And we'd be like, "No, that's weird. <laughs> that sounds dangerous. That sounds dangerous. <laughs> Someone's gonna get so, hurt." So, so, so we it would just like uh, like our our group was wider, but uh, it was like this other guy and me, and we just spent a lot of time playing video games. Um, and then finally, the the game master kind of introduced this plot. Where these like horrible mutant cockroaches were underneath my character's <laughs> house, so he kind of had to like forcefully turn the game into a dungeon crawl <laughs> for us to work. And we had a lot of fun with it, but this is—it's more funny in retrospect. You think like, man, that poor guy, like he was like ah, shadow run and like get get gun to recon- recoil compensation and monofilament stuff, and it's like, and we're like, yeah, oh, awesome, like I pick this option at the beginning of the game that says I have a quadrillion dollars because that's how Shadowrun works. It's like, I'm an awesome cyborg. It's like, I can just plug myself in right into my video games now (laughs) and not do anything. Oh, I also feel like I'd be totally remiss if I didn't mention the Southeastern University one-shots that Rodrigo ran back when we were in college together, which were a series of incredibly serious mage games set in an alternate reality version of Northwestern. Yeah, those were... were (laughs) That's really great, <laughs> especially because most of them the most of them didn't start until like eleven p.m. Usually, <laughs> yeah. they were like super tired the whole way. Um, yeah, I, no, it was really ridiculous. We we had a, a player once, Zoe, who um, was, I believe, the sleep ninja because. <laughs> The entire game, she was asleep. Yeah, actually, we played that game after she did Dance Marathon, which was 30 oh, hours right. of dancing. And then I was like, oh, I think I, I, I'm going to run a game today. You just stay here and sleep. And she's like, no, I want to play. <laughs> so we we deliberately created a character for her whose powers revolved around sleeping in case she fell asleep during the game. <laughs> that was good. Did she fall asleep during the game? I think she did. And then you times. automatically... Did you automatically run her character when she was asleep? No, I think I think we set something up so that stuff happened while she was asleep. Oh, that's like, funny. If yeah. she's asleep, then this set of things happens. And, and you know, we could wake her for combat because yeah. then she was asleep. Rob, do you have anything? Uh, one of the more entertaining ones that I, 
I ended up running this one. Uh, it wasn't mechanically thing, but Rodrigo was in it. I did a Wild West campaign. Uh, one of my other players was a like Bible thumping Baptist preacher type, uh, and Rodrigo's character was just kind of this hired gun. Not quite. I don't want to say he wasn't racist. No, but he, was, he was just. He was just like he. He thought he knew everything, and he thought that he had everybody pegged. And specifically, he didn't. Nothing. <laughs> nothing he did was right. We had a scion in the party, mm-hmm. which my character automatically believed was a demon summoner, demon summoner, devil worshipper. Um, we had a, uh, kind of a native American type guy in the party who was like a scout and my character just had like assumed he was a mystic of some kind, even though he really wasn't, mm. um, and got along famously with the, uh, the Baptist preacher guy. Yeah. And so I, I, I had trouble starting to run a couple times just be, mm. or continuing the game a couple times just because his character and... Atticus Pratt was the name of the preacher. Right. Would just start going back and forth because they got along really well. Uh, they would be they com- the characters complimented each other because uh, whatever God or whatever Atticus worshipped just kind of fit and worked with. Uh, I can't remember your character's name. Artemius. Artemius. Artemius Clay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so and they they call each other by their full. It's just ridiculous back and forth that I was not able to yeah, stop we actually, laughing. We actually circumvented a lot of plot <laughs> by just us, like the two of us browbeating people into mm. letting us do things. Mm. Cool. Uh, Timothy writes in from the... Uh, he says he's way behind. He's only on episode 120 at the time of this <laughs> writing. Well, he'll catch up by the time his letter comes to Maybe, because this was... Well, this is a fairly recent email, oh, okay. so... Mm. Um, at the time of this recording. So, hello, future Timothy. Yes. Uh, do you guys ever look back in amazement at how much everything has changed from your characters to you as people and to the game itself? Has five years of critical hit changed you at all? Matthew? Well, see, I'm not a good person to ask this question. <laughs> because I, I, I have said before, I don't necessarily believe in, in normal. And what that means is... When it comes to the status quo, I just kind of assume that everything is going to change. But when I look back at the character that I don't have anymore, who mm-hmm. we don't talk about because it's too soon, you awful, terrible man, <laughs> looking at you. I can see you on my screen right now. I'm giving you the eyes, man. Yeah, I know. <laughs> when I think about that character's arc, I like that character's arc, and I feel like it's. It's difficult, really, when you're in Critical Hit, because Critical Hit isn't purely a role-playing game. Critical Hit is a role-playing game combined with some performance and combined with, you know, the expectation that I want to also be entertaining. So things that I've done with previous characters, I didn't do with He Who Shall Not Be Named, whose name rhymes with Pork. Stork? But I, York. Dork? Yes. No, I was Dork. Zork. Dork, 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 Anyway... I think that, yeah, I can look at that and go, that was a pretty amazing arc. But here's the thing. From episode to episode, it didn't feel necessarily like a pretty amazing arc. It felt like I was in a place and a time and that, that, that character had a life of his own, which is kind of the way the real world goes. You know, I look at it now. I have an 11-year-old kid, and I'm like, holy crap, when did that happen? You know, it's, it's not necessarily something that I look at life in segments Anytime you have a beginning, you got three endings and a middle and a side quest and a thing over there. So the answer to your question is yes, no, maybe, and seven. Rob? Yeah, we've changed a lot. Like, like I can see where we kind of all started. I can see. I mean, obviously, I came into this not knowing half the people I was going to be playing with. <laughs> and now I see you almost daily. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether you want to or not. <laughs> Specifically, it's like, Rob, we're doing this and this and this and this and this this week. Yep. Like, okay. <laughs> I'll tell all my friends I'm not doing anything else. <laughs> you can always say no. Why would I want to say no? Exactly. Everything's fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, it, it's, I 
definitely wouldn't have seen where we were going when we started this. No. Yeah. Brian? Yeah, it's definitely been quite the ride. Uh, I don't know. Someday I may crack back open the uh, old episodes and listen and cringe at myself, but yeah, no, it's... It's overrated. <laughs> Sam, had you listened to all the episodes? I had not. Okay. Rodrigo? Uh, have you listened to all the episodes? <laughs> I have not. There are. I, I know for a fact that there are episodes of Critical Head that I haven't listened to. Mm-hmm. Um, the, yeah, obviously things are, there's, there's a lot of things that I would have never gotten a chance to do if not for critical hit. Uh, for example, I don't think that I would have ever been to Utah if not for critical hit. There you go. Yeah, that's, um, that's true. Um, no reason to go to Utah. Yeah. <laughs> why, why would anybody go to Utah otherwise? No, I'm, there's lots of things. There's yeah. like beehives. I, I want to say this is the beehive state. <laughs> yep. Thank, thanks to critical hit. I know what massive altitude sickness feels like. Yeah. yeah there you go. <laughs> um, uh, it, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I have as of this recording, 3000 ish Twitter followers. And I assume that's <laughs> almost 100% because of critical hit. I am not that interesting. Six just, of them are me just in a vacuum. Yeah. Six of them are Matthew. Four of them are my mom. Right. She's very Twitter savvy. It's like her, her business and her actual one. And then her joke right. one. Um, right. And then her Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. Bot, and then I her Donald Trump uh, bot that just, uh, uh, yeah, it just, it just, uh, retweets what he says. Um, and, but adds for me to poop on at the end. Um, <laughs> however, that story started. Yes. Uh, I've gotten to meet a lot of cool people. Um, I've gotten to do a lot of things. I actually kind of uh, reconnected with Sam, uh, who I knew from college because of critical hit. So it's, it's, yeah, it, there's yeah. critical, make, critical hit is this like additional yeah. engine I'm in awesome. my life <laughs> that just kind of pulls stuff towards it, takes resources away from other things, but also mm. creates other, creates energy in a, in a sense uh, for me <laughs> to do just, other things. So it's like having a child, really. <laughs> kind of, especially with all of the like, uh, shushing, <laughs> shushing and glaring that I do during the game. <laughs> Um, I mean, I've only been at this for uh, a few months, I guess, but yep. it's already been insane uh, for me. I never expected to have fan art drawn of any of my characters, uh-huh. and yet and there it is. So uh, I am so happy. Oh, it's weird, right? Wait till the slash fix starts. Oh, I, I, I cannot wait. I'm so excited. <laughs> the first time I read a Torque story... I had three conflict emotions. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so touched. This is so wonderful. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe that this means enough to people that they're writing that. <laughs> and holy crap, they they got Torque entirely wrong. <laughs> that third one was just a little one over there in the corner because the other two were so overwhelming. And then I sent some notes in anonymously. <laughs> Here, here's the weird thing. Um, as of today's recording, mm-hmm. um, we are we are just over a week out from our sixth anniversary of the first wow episode of huh. of uh, holy moly of critical wow. hit. So just over six years ago, and to be honest, it does not seem like uh, six years to me. Uh-huh. It goes by very quickly. Yeah. And, uh, but then when you're, when we were talking about, um, Lords of the Feywild, that was yeah. something that went on for two years. Yeah. And it's like, no way mm-hmm. did it go on for two years. And yeah, I, it's like, and uh, I go back the, into the our archive. Like yeah. You look, you look at, uh, Critical Hit, like six years of Critical Hit, two thirds of which was Lords of the Feywild. <laughs> no, and and yeah. it's crazy because it's like, when Rodrigo was like, no, this has been going on for two years, I was like, no, not that much. And then yeah. I went into archives and sure enough, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Two years well, of just I, that storyline. So I think back to the Celestial Crusade episodes where we were recording on Sunday afternoons mm-hmm. and I had two different jobs that I don't have now. And I was taking time off from both of them because Critical Hit was important. And I'm like, I wonder if that's why I don't have those jobs anymore. <laughs> oh. Well, yeah, I don't even have the job that I had whenever I started. I think, I think, did, uh, did, as far as the, uh, Rodrigo, I think Rodrigo is the only one who actually has the job he yep. had when we started. I'm the, I'm the only steady here. I'm the rock. Yes. I You're think the rock. The, uh, I'm Mick Foley. I think, though, that the person who's who I've 
enjoyed seeing the most personal growth from their personal life is Rob and seeing how everything has gone from being a, a, a student to to finally moving in with Brian. To finally moving in with Brian. <laughs> you are uh, not helping. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, man. No, but I think if we, you know, for all of us uh, who know Rob, we, we've seen his ups and downs, and uh, he's come a long way. So I'm very excited to see that. Thank you. Uh, Dear Orem and the Oralites, I'm a fan <laughs> of Critical Hit. No. That's what it says. No. Uh, no. I want to say that's like a nipple brand. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It would be Orem and the Ore Miners. Mm. Uh, the question is, I was brainstorming with a DM for characters, and he suggested I become a bard to round out the party. My problem is that I'm not really sure on bards. While I like the idea of being a utility character with a lot of stuff, and I like characters like the Pied Piper or uh, some other people, I don't know, uh, who use music for special abilities, I'm honestly finding it hard to think of who the character is going to be. Uh, I eventually, f- uh, it eventually fell through as I couldn't decide things in time for the DM. So what do you do if your DM wants you to play a specific race, human, because uh, we were going to have a multiracial party, elf, orc, dwarf, etc., and class, but you can't think of his backstory or nature that easily? The thing of it is, you know, I like to I like to point out something that most people look at me like I'm crazy. Do you know who my favorite fictional character who fits into the bard class as set together by Dungeons and Dragons is? Who? I don't know who. Banshee from the X-Men. <laughs> he has specific powers that are related to him making noises that give effects and sometimes buff other people and give him special abilities. So if I'm thinking about, you know, what to expect. And I, I can tell you, as someone who has recently been told by a dungeon master what he absolutely has to have uh, in, 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 in a certain character, not mentioning any names, there, there are expectations of any game. And if someone tells you you have to play a halfling wizard... And you agree to play a halfling wizard. First of all, you have to make the decision to do that. You always have the ability to say, no, Bob, I'll catch you next time around. But you also want to look at it from a perspective of how can you make that halfling wizard yours? Even if you're playing the most by-the-book halfling wizard ever, it has to be something that you enjoy that you can put yourself into. So if somebody tells you, you know, for instance, you have to make sure that you have X, Y, and Z... You can throw in the ABC on top of that for flavor, or you can, you know, just kind of do something that's completely entirely different, like Banshee. <laughs> yes, I fly because of shouting. <laughs> Me boyo. <laughs> I can also talk while shouting for yeah. some reason. Yes. Um. Uh, so, as as a as a dungeon master, I will sometimes, actually, very frequently, turn to a player and say. I need you to play something within this box. And the main reason why I do that is so that that player will have something specific to do that only they do. Um, And I suspect that's what your dungeon master is doing here. He's not like, well, I want a human. He's just like, well, we have a dragon face, a chicken hawk, and a dungeon (laughs) elf. So you're going to have it's going to be a lot easier for you if you just play a human and let those guys be weird and you play the control specimen mm. um, <laughs> as, as far as the bard it can be difficult i think bards are one of the most difficult uh, classes to approach because they're so specific they're so incredibly specific is like this is a guy who using music also has magic like, there's musical magic, but also spell-type magic. Mm. Um, they're a generalist, lots of skills, also all this other stuff. And what I find helpful is to kind of focus on one of those things. Like, either go into, like, the skill specialization stuff, or do a big magical musical guy, or do a straight-up, like, I'm a guy who learned this spell from a wizard, and this spell from a sorcerer, and this spell from a cleric, kind of stuff. Um, the other option is always to... Uh, look at a musical tradition or a storytelling tradition and kind of base it around that, right? Mm-hmm. So your like um, 
uh, well, like we were actually outside the show for some other reason. We were talking about Mad Max. Mm. Um, so that whole like witness me thing, that's a bard thing. Mm. Like the the bardic uh, majestic word of "You do not die this day. Your story is not done." Kind of thing. That's a bard thing. Like the thing that they in fourth edition at least in between stuff. It's like uh, you get to heal more because the bard's around, but what the bard's supposed to be doing is telling the tale of what just happened or, you know, Mm -hmm. talking to you or telling you something, doing something. Um, And you can take those traditions from other places, from your own, you know, kind of uh, ethnic background or whatever, research into that, make a bard out of that. Sam, do you have any ideas? Suggestions? No, I absolutely agree. I I played a um, uh, bard... In a gnome bard in fourth ed for a while and I also focused on the kind of the storytelling aspect you know her, her deal was that she'd been sent out from the Feywild to get like the greatest story ever told from the mm-hmm. natural world um, and you know I, I like to again like think in pop culture references uh, of people who embody certain class like I think of um, like Antonio Banderas's character in the 13th warrior as a bard as oh, absolutely the, you know, yeah the guy who tells the story um but, uh, but yeah, I mean, usually a, a lot of times if a DM has a s- specific thing for you, they might also have specific plot for you. And that's always a fun because I, that's certainly the case with me. And uh, it's uh, a good time to uh, have, set yourself as different in that regard because maybe if everyone's being weird folk, you know, you can play the normal guy, but you also know a bunch of stuff about human society that all those weirdos might not. Right. And especially as a bard, you have the excuse of knowing basically everything. Plus, if pop culture has taught us anything, the person with the normal head tends to be the main character. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you guys have anything to add? I, half the characters I've played on Critical Hit have been stuff. Rodrigo's been like, here, you're playing this. <laughs> uh, I mean, Smith, to start with, the, before I joined, Rodrigo was like, all right, here's your two choices. You can be an Avenger or you can be a Shifter. Hey, I said, I have plot if you play an Avenger or a Shifter. Otherwise, we have to look at other stuff. You did have a, the option to just go with something else. Yeah. Well, my, my first instinct was, can <laughs> I do both? And I was immediately shot down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You can't uh, have everything. Where would you keep it? Chris Chris writes... Uh, Brian, did you have anything? No. I, okay. Uh, Chris writes in and says, By now you have probably received a thousand emails. Yes, I have actually, Chris. <laughs> Mentioning this, but Today. another way to uh, speed up combat on Roll20 is to build macros. Yeah. There's a bit of work up front, but mm-hmm. once you're there all built, all you have to do is make an attack is to choose an attack... And then click on the enemy, and then add modifiers, and the macro makes the attack roll, displays the attack info, and makes the damage roll. These clicks uh, and your attack is all laid out, and he's sent me attachment on making macros. But uh, yeah, I, about I think after I think it's like the first or second uh, session that we sat down on roll twenty uh, in in uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, I was like, oh, here's all these macros, and here's how they work, and so I read up on it. And if anyone's interested, there's actually um, Wizards of the Coast does have some instructions, some simple instructions on how you can create macros uh, in Roll20 for your stuff. But if you go out and search, there's some really cool scripts that I found. I haven't been able to do it on this because I think you have to be the mentor or the leader or in this case, Rodrigo. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a macro that will actually allow you to bring in your fourth edition character just by copying and pasting it into this mm. macro right into uh, Roll20 uh, so that your character is there with all of the powers. And then, so, for example, you want to attack somebody, you make sure that it, uh, you click on your character, you click on the target character, and then you roll the macro, and then it... Um, uh, no, you uh, click on your character, roll the macro, it'll ask you who the target is, and then it'll roll everything else for you from mm-hmm. there on out for that mm. full attack, including... Um, the the monsters dice roll sure. and the results of that. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do out there with roll twenty uh, that I think is fantastic, and I would encourage listeners if you have not to go and look and see what you can do under the hood with uh, with roll twenty because it's it's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I am. I, it is. It is uh, important though, Stephen, for you to come to terms with the fact that because in an early episode 
you were asking about yeah, that yeah, yeah, and yeah. seemed frustrated. Everybody's going to yeah, send yeah. you. No, no, no. That's Here's, what I said. That's why I said when, when Chris is like, you've probably received yes. a thousand emails. Yes, I already every, have. And I already have gotten the, every, the macros, cool stuff. Um, but I didn't know until I was doing research about actually importing your full character in because the only thing that I'm not liking about the macro setup right now is if suddenly I get a new piece of equipment in the middle of the game, I have to go back and add whatever the pieces uh-huh. are into the macros. It's not that that hard, but the other thing I like for the macro is, especially for my character, is the way we have it set up. If you've listened to the um, creation episode over at the member site, uh, I can just go in and click on the powers that I need for this for this day or for this uh, spell set, and then the others turn off, and I just have those at the bottom of the screen and know when I can use those and not use those. And if they're spent, I can just turn those off in the macro too, so they don't show up in the bottom of the uh, hmm. bottom of the window. So I, I think macros are great, and I think uh, more people should use them. Brian, are there you've, any uh, good macros that deal with combat advantage, stealth? Because that's my main problem. Is all there, the uh, there probably and is, and I would say just do a search for like uh, roll twenty Dungeons Dragons Fourth Edition macros, and you'll and I, like I said, I just did it and found like because I was looking for yeah, specifically import Fourth Edition character into Roll Twenty, and just found all sorts of great resources. A lot of them are in the Roll Twenty forums, uh, so if mm-hmm, you go in yeah. and look over there, you'll find a lot of it there. But yeah, then you come to the issue that uh, yeah, for example, with stealth, it's house ruled, so right, you're right. going to have to write your own macro, right? Which yeah, yeah can be done. Yeah, it, Brian's a programmer. Yeah, well. I got a degree for it. There you go. <laughs> we'll say you're a programmer. All right. Any other reactions to Chris's comment? Yes. How do you type macros with boxing gloves on? Yes. <laughs> well, Rodrigo. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. That wraps it up for this mailbag episode all the way from Lappy486. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you have any other questions, comments, thoughts, ideas, podcasts at Majorspoilers.com. And until next time, here's hoping all of your dice rolls are critical hits. Visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.